0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, the digital launch of I Shot the Devil by Melbourne-based author Ruth McIver, in conversation with Josh Pomari. I Shot the Devil won the 2018 Rochelle Prize for Emerging Writers. It is an unforgettable story of murder, trauma, and childhoods lost. Before we start, A quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon.
1: This is a treat to have you all here. All you book lovers, all you thriller lovers. Here we all are together. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings. And on behalf of Readings, your favourite independent bookshop and of Hachette Publishing House, I am delighted to have each and every one of you here tonight. I'm thinking about what a beautiful country it is that we live in. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation. I'm speaking from a place that's not been ceded. I'm speaking from a place where I live on stolen ground. And I'd like to pay my respects, but actually more importantly, and this is truly more importantly, I want to give my gratitude to the First Nations people for letting me have access to their stories, to their songlines, to an understanding of this country that we all share. It seems to me that their generosity has allowed us that joy of walking down the street and smelling the jasmine, that joy of walking into a room and loving stories and knowing that everyone else in that room loves the same sort of stories. It seems to me we owe an extraordinary debt to the First Nations people, one that we can never, ever fulfil. And I think it's really important that we just take some time out to say thank you. Thank you so, so much. And now I'd like to introduce you to a bloke that came to our country, that came over here from New Zealand, and I want to say Josh is one of these blokes that has kind of made it his, I don't know, maybe his life's work to understand writers, to understand why people share stories, now, of course, he's a very acclaimed author himself. He's got three books under his under his belt. He's, he's been on, you know, awarded prizes. But I think it's this particular uh, urge that he has to understand why people write and why people read that has made Josh one of reading's favourite people. And I am delighted to introduce him here and to welcome him so that he can welcome our star of the evening.
2: Thank you, Christine. That is a um, a really tough act to follow. Uh, Thanks for such a generous intro. Um, And and also thanks for hosting us um, because uh, we're all locked down, but we are still going to celebrate this um, fantastic debut novel. Um, So, Ruth, I'm not going to do a traditional um, big, big intro for you, but I will explain how I first encountered um, Ruth's work. So uh, Ruth, as everyone now knows, is one of the most exciting new talents on the crime writing scene um, in Australia, but also abroad as well. Um, And this is Ruth's first book, uh, but I, I sense it could be her Uh, her 10th book actually, Um, or, or she could be a few books in, and that's because it's one that's so well written, but two, I happen to know for a fact um, that Ruth has written something else, another book, a whole entire novel uh, that was um, exceptional. And I was judging a unpublished manuscript prize um, and Ruth's name came up and I read, uh, a good chunk of this book before quite cruelly, if I recall correctly, and I may be wrong, but I I think quite cruelly it was pulled out of the prize um, when I was reading it. And when you've got 150 manuscripts to get through, um, when you're judging, it's, you know, you can't dwell on something that is no longer um, in the prize. And it was pulled, if my memory serves me right, um, because it was shortlisted or had won another prize Um, and that wasn't even this book and so when I started reading this book I thought hey this isn't set in Perth this isn't the same story I read you know a a year or two or two and a half years ago Um, and so I thought who is this who is this Ruth McGuire that's putting out um, you know another novel that's possibly even better than what I was reading at the time. Um, and it is just such a brilliant book. Um, it's engaging, entertaining, and there's so much depth here. Um, and I'm going to quite selfishly pick Ruth brain about writing this book because I'd love to write a book like this um, myself. it's it's complex. the characters are brilliant, uh, and and it's this real sense of voice um, that that i that I fell in love with. it's this it's this, you know, um Aaron Sloan's Sloan's voices. Really, uh, like Gillian, um, something Gillian Flynn would write, like, uh, it it reminds me, you know, there's lots of parallels of Sharp Objects and and Gone Girl, um, which are both huge, big sellers, and hopefully this will be as well. So my first question for Roof is, how did this become the debut? Why was it this one that you chose um, to go of as opposed to the other book you'd written?
3: Well, I think that was just a matter of chance and um, I also just want to thank you for reaching out and sending me an email when you were judging that and saying how much you enjoyed reading it because it really meant a lot to me and it was also really serendipitous and interesting that we're sitting here now and you're <laughs> you're here helping me launch this book because I, um, that's when I encountered your book when I was in Ubud, actually. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I got an email from you and I was like reading, yeah, your first book. So <laughs> it, it's really odd. Um, so, well, Nothing Gold, I guess, like it, it had, I had, had intended it to be my first novel and I was shopping it around at the same time. Um, but Uh, I, you know, I had a lot of um, failures and rejections with that and I'm really actually happy to hear that that's one of the reasons why it was cruelly pulled from the competition. (laughs) Uh, It was shortlisted for the banjo, um, but That happened at the same time as I um, won um, the Rochelle Prize. At the time, I knew that I'd been shortlisted, but I had nothing for like 10 years. Like I just kept submitting and submitting. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, basically they both went out at the same time. and It was just the kind of um, luck of the draw. But obviously because it was my second book, I had honed a lot of my skills and it certainly wasn't my second book ever as you you foreshadowed. Um, I had written many books, one of them, in fact, named after a Phil Collins song when I was 10 Um, about about the song Another Day in Paradise, Um, so it was very topical. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'd, I'd written a couple of other novels that all kind of stopped after I think three chapters. Cause I was like, I can't do this. Um, yeah. So I think it was like that I'd kind of refined, um, my craft a lot more and there was something about the voice that was compelling. And I think it was probably also because it was my, um, sense of place and rewriting my past and and my story from living in the states and that sort of thing and there was just something about it that had um you know, a kind of more mysterious or kind of electric quality. Um, so I think that just got, you know, captured. So, yeah, so that other manuscript, Nothing Gold, who I still love and dearly cherish and hope something happens um, uh, for this book, uh, yeah, is, is still there and um, hopefully it just will be a different order.
2: Yeah, it's funny because um, now that you say, I mean, I, these conversations wouldn't happen, I think, if you hadn't started writing um, What Became, I Shot the Devil. You know, if you'd just stuck with that, it's, it, it inevitably would have been published. I mean, it was almost there. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite a, quite a handy position to be in having a, uh, you know, publishable manuscript sitting in the drawer um, as a debut author and potentially avoiding that second book syndrome. Um, but yeah, the, the thing that sort of struck me, two things. One... I, 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 if there's anyone who's entering unpublished manuscript prize in 2019, <laughs> I apologize on behalf of Ruth because it sounds like she either won or was shortlisted. <laughs> um,
3: it was 2018, but yeah.
2: 2018, <laughs> a couple of years ago. So hopefully, you know, you've moved on from the disappointment. <laughs> yeah.
3: uh, and,
2: and the second thing uh, that struck I me mean, is you said you mentioned, um, you know, about uh, writing about the US, and um, it's something that so many writers get so wrong, including myself, you know, whenever I try to write books or even short stories in the US, um, uh, it seems like I'm writing fan fiction of John Steinbeck or something, you know, like it's, 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 I've stolen someone else's setting and I'm writing exactly like them because I'm too afraid to, you know, venture away from this world that I know really well. And, um, and, and, you know, what's the show, uh, Mere of East Town, you know, like I watched that. And I'm like, oh, cool, that's my setting now. Uh, but of course, it doesn't work like that. And you write this really convincing and evocative um setting. And of course, it's not just one place, you know. Um, so I wonder, you know, the parallels in this book, there are some parallels to your life. And I think we can, as readers often project and make the mistake of you know thinking or trying to imagine the author in these situations and I don't believe you were a Satanist or involved in some ritual killing um but it does it does have that feel you know can, can you talk about the setting and writing about a place you sort of know
3: yeah certainly and i you know i couldn't agree with you more about that feeling of of being you know of writing what you know, and when you venture out of that feeling inauthentic. Um, you know, because I've I've done that with subsequent books where I'm I'm sort of setting things in contemporary America and I feel really worried and um, uncomfortable. So I think for me, because I lived there at um such an impressionable age, um, and I hadn't really kind of explored it, uh, even though, like, you know, obviously I discussed it, I had an American accent until I was 18. Um, I hadn't written in that voice and I didn't revisit those places and I hadn't actually gone back there until after I finished the book which was so it was sort of like everything was um you know recreated but memory basically so um when I went back there it was really interesting because all the dimensions of everything looked different and felt different and a lot of the landmarks were gone um but yeah I I felt that it came very easily and naturally and in the vernacular because it was almost like your first language or something so you know all of the terms and you know brands and things like that, but of course that was the '90s, and so you know the 2010 parts I had to kind of research and and I I think I'd applied for funding in my PhD and and I was like they were like no. Nah. So I was like, but I need it, it's research. So I went back after I won um, the Rochelle Prize um, and I went back and, you know, thank God I did because, you know, obviously the world's all closed up now um, and I got to go back to Long Island and that sort of thing. But I think that um, that sense of place is from having lived there for so long. So, you know, I'd say like four and a half years or or five years of, of a really kind of impressionable time in my life.
2: Mm. it's funny because u.s exports so much culture that it's almost like you could like new york is one of those places you like totally i i can really imagine um yeah, and so it's so hard you know to find something distinctive about a place like new york but you, you still manage to um and and the other thing that strikes me is it's um like i was a 90s kid but i was a i was like a kid and um, but I still remember so much of this yeah so, so setting of course isn't just place it's time as well and totally. yeah the 90s feel is was so nostalgic I, I found
3: yeah it's really important to me, and I think also because like I was you know I'm born in 79 so my brother's four years older than me so it was almost like I was kind of vicariously recreating his adolescence because I didn't even get the cool times of the 90s like I remember like my brother went to like Lollapalooza and I was 13 14 he was like oh we might take you with us (laughs) but then again we might not so you know I didn't even get to go to like I was just starting to go to the city and all of that stuff when I moved back to Perth and into the northern suburbs into a really kind of suburban environment. So it was kind of a bit devastating. So part of that is also me recreating his adolescence because I kind of was there observing it like a little creep, so.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's that thing that I've got, I've got older brothers as well. And my older brother was um, like he'd go to like the Vans Warped Tour when it came to New Zealand and he was, he was like burning, he was the first person in all of Rotorua where I'm from burning CDs, so oh. you know, he was like that he was a he was like a, a a much less cool um version um of Ricky, you know, like he, <laughs> he was that guy that was trying to distribute mushies and yeah and that sort of thing. So um, yeah. yeah it, it really I, th- I think it really struck a chord with me. Um but just that satanic panic, you know, it's such a fascinating concept, but <laughs>
3: So interesting. And I'm so, I think like I was so uh, you know, intrigued by that as a child, especially growing up in such a Roman Catholic background. Um, like uh and my mum will be here, so she hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but um, she, you know, actually went to a convent um and didn't take vows. So um, you know, I went to Catholic school growing up and um, you know, and I I in the 70s, both my parents are I'm um, Dublin born. You know, say so like the Exorcist was banned there, like um, so there was this massive sense of like the you know anything that was kind of um, supernatural or satanic, um, you know, being really really terrifying. So I was like really um, aware of it and cognizant of it, and also being like a uh, like a young Guns and Roses and ACDC, like and I mean young, like I was eight. My cat's name was Angus Young. Um, my first cat when I was eight. Um, so really into all that kind of music. I was really conscious of all the kind of um, discourse surrounding it too.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's quite, you know, it's quite a hard thing to research because, uh, you know, it, f- it feels like there's no account that isn't um, contaminated by the level of hysteria. But I noticed in your acknowledgments you note a um, doctoral program at um, yeah. university yeah. and and part of that research formed, you know, the basis for this novel. So can, can you talk us through particularly like the true crime elements?
3: Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think also just, you know, obviously um one of the things I've been really thinking a lot about this week too is just mentorship because I had this really romantic idea kind of from a young age of, of having mentors, like writing mentors, you know, um, and it it sort of exists now, but it's in a much more commercial way. Like people, you know, pay to get their manuscript assessed and, um, you know, or they get they win a prize like the Rochelle where you get mentorship and that that sort of thing, but it's not commonplace for an older writer to mentor a younger writer. And so, you know, I was really craving that. And also I think having worked, uh, you know, say three days a week, writing two days a week plus weekends and that sort of thing, I really wanted to I mean I wanted to explore that and I wanted to research and I did want to get a doctorate because you can't teach without a doctorate uh I wanted to write full-time too so I wrote I rewrote Nothing Gold and the book during that um my candidacy I just was like I'm gonna go hell for leather like while I have this stipend coming through which obviously still isn't heaps um but you know it was something um and I obviously got to work with David Wish Wilson who is incredible writer I just have so much respect for him and he was writing in this area of you know true crime inspired fiction and um I you know so I started pursuing um that kind of as, as basically my jumping off point into writing the book. So, and then obviously, like, I, I discovered my other mentor, um, Susan Bradley-Smith, um, and these essays formed um, my exegesis. So they were all into, they were all interested in um, satanic panic, but just also, like, youth crimes and um, how the media sensationalises, uh, you know, basically, like, Nothing satanic about the Ricky Casso case, which the book is, um, you know, very loosely based on. Um, and that was kind of, you know, very quickly revealed. But when you look at the, the headlines, um, the New York Times uh, have like ritualised killing. And it's the New York Times, like really reputable sources. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to sort of explore those concepts and those ideas for some time, which was really good. And it obviously informed the writing. And But, yeah, you can't say... You can't, I can't really dis uh I can't really sort of discount the value of having those mentors, but having that time also.
0: Um,
3: and and having the stipend and you know, the scholarship and the support. And so it was it was really wonderful for me.
2: Yeah. And just in terms of the research, I feel like you've you've found your sort of place with yeah. time-inspired fiction, which is which is really invaluable because I think um lots of writers, you know. Toil and over writing over the practice of writing um, without necessarily finding their their place how how they can yeah. break through so it's it's a it's a really cool thing to have gone through um, and so like lots of this, like the story is Ricky in my view like he, he's the right at the heart of the story um, and you know I, I loved all the characters and even um, the bad ones but the ones who you start hating and end up liking are always my favourite characters. Um, Yeah. I had a bit of that with Ricky, but the the funny thing is I think it would be, you know, I think um, woman would, would start liking Ricky at the start because he's such a bad boy but I kind of I had this thing I'm like oh he reminded me too much of my brother that I didn't like him
3: well he's also a bit of a nerd and that's the thing that I kind of really um you know there's so much posturing and I I I find that kind of like charming but like I I suppose like yeah like everybody um who is even likable is also quite unlikable (laughs) Uh, (laughs) hopefully not so much so. Like I think like say some authors, like say Breddy Stinellis, for example, there are just, you know, books of kids where you're just like, I hate everybody, yet I love reading this book. And, you know, hopefully there's some more likeability in these characters, Um, but, you know, he can do that. He can get away with that because most I, I find it really challenging to read a book where everybody's kind of ghastly so but i'd say everyone's a bit compromised that's that might be the way that i'd put it in this
2: book yeah and, and you know there's that um and i get this i get this a lot this um qu- the question about uh, an unlikable narrator you know um how far can you go with that and um i, I think you know m- my view is... Uh, you can dislike the narrator, but you have to care about them, you know. Yes. Um, and I had that real feeling <laughs> for and like she, um It wasn't even her decisions. It was just, you know, she's not the most likable person. You know, she's, I would say, definitely a functioning alcoholic. Um, yeah. Which doesn't inherently make her unlikable, but it's at odds with her you know what she's trying to achieve in the story so
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and i think um i think also uh she doesn't really care about others too i think that was and that's interesting for me writing um you know a female character also who she has feelings but isn't compassionate and like isn't empathizing and is just kind of like really ruthless in her pursuit of what she wants which is like for me, a really interesting kind of uh, deviation from my myself and most <laughs> most women that I'm surrounded by, because we do care so much about others. Um, but yeah, just a little bit, really myopic. Um, and relentless and, and that can be really um, annoying I think <laughs> if she was a person um, and I'm not going to say anything about star signs but I know her star sign and let me tell you <laughs> there's some interesting placements so. <laughs>
2: um, you, you don't, you can I would accept a yes or no answer for this because you can get in trouble yeah. but um, are any of the characters inspired by people you know?
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes um but it's funny because people will say to me like oh so who's gonna play you in the movie and I'm like what do you mean me and they're like and I was like I'm not fucking era like I I had one I had one drink every three months but um (laughs) yeah there is definitely that element for sure but you know they they and it's i guess also because you know that's like a first novel thing too like your mm-hmm. first novel is supposed to be like thinly veiled autobiography and um i think i because it was my second novel i was like i'm not going to do that um but th- th- obviously there were elements of people in there that are real people but they became they became characters like i see them and and a lot of them are like sort of collages of um, pop culture kind of people. Like Erin actually, to me, looks like um, Tiffany Amber Thiessen in Save by the Bell.
0: Um,
3: uh, just really like totally like that. And, um, you know, like I said, I know her star sign. So, and it's not mine, so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's proof enough for me. You know, yeah, <laughs> um, And just with the characters, you know, um, when you, because you talk about, like, there are characters that are probably largely inspired by people you know, but they've changed through the writing and yeah. editing process. It, just just because this is for me and I want to understand how you work, um, is it a case of you putting them in as placeholders and, you know, like, I'll, I'll base it on this person, but then out of necessity for the plot, they change? Or is it not driven by the plot and more you see them in this circumstance and then you kind of build up the spec story and they're this new character.
3: Well, I don't know about whether or not you're a, a plotter or a pantser. So, like, I, I, for me, because I'm a full pantser, like, it basically what happens is, is, like, I sort of create them and then they start just doing whatever they want um, and then someone comes along and says, you can't do that. <laughs> um, do not feed people to crocodiles. It's unbelievable. (laughs) But hey, it's my book and it's Florida. And if I want to feed them to crocodiles, by the way, this doesn't happen.
2: (laughs) Um, I feel like um, I missed the (laughs) part.
3: So I think the thing is like the like the archetypes there, but then it's just like whatever happens, I'm not in control of it. And and think that's that's basically just what happened. People just started showing their true colours. And um, you know, I and then I was given feedback. And I think this is part of the PhD process too, because it was so good. So I had somebody, first of all, I had deadlines, um, and there was no faffing around with those. And I was also really, you know, I'm I I really, you know, I guess like I was being conscientious also because, you know, it was a professional contact and I didn't want to be someone who didn't deliver on time either. And I wanted to meet my milestones and I'm a good student, God damn it. So I was, you know, I was being very timely and, um, and also working with someone who was like kind of quite a, a good but strict editor too and cut out the crocodiles. I, I brought this up almost every time and I was like, I'm never going to forgive him for that. <laughs> but I also do forgive him um, because I think it's better without them. But, yeah, like I, I definitely um, they did what they wanted. They got paired back. And that's what kind of happens to me. It's like I think I just let myself with the first draft, I let myself go a bit wild and it's like just let everything play out and happen the way it does and then go back in and clean it all up.
2: Yeah, oh, no, I know I do do that. um, and I, and I hate myself for it when I'm, when I'm,
3: close. oh, I hate myself too for that. <laughs> I hate it. I'm just so jealous of people who don't do that. I'm like, the fuck? and I'm like, this time it'll be different. And I even storyboard and it doesn't work. It's like, yeah. I just don't think you can be something you're not I've tried that and like I remember with my first book I tried so hard I got all this software and did all this stuff and I realized the way that I write best is like I gotta lock myself away I've gotta let myself look like shit I've gotta just basically just live on coffee and not do anything and I've just got to get it all done and like not do normal hours and just go in that zone and also just not plan and then I've got to go and clean it up afterwards it's the worst way of working it's totally impractical but it's like it's just your process and I think you know um you can't really fight your own nature so
2: yeah yeah it's like you're about to have a party and the planners will have like plastic cups and bin bags and like probably put tarpaulin down or something, you know, like they're prepared for the aftermath. Whereas, you know, pantsers will just be like, cool, come in, kick the door down, do whatever, we'll fix it all in the morning. Uh, and regrettably, you know, you always wake up and you're like, what have I done?
3: I know, I know. And also just, like, I'm always thinking, like, I wish I was writing your novel. Like, I was and I don't mean just yours because yours was really good. <laughs> I, mean, I wish I was writing anyone else's novel but my own, like, because I'm always overcomplicating things and I just, it might just get so a simple idea. But at least with this one, I think what I did was starting with a first person that never changed. And when I actually found an old file and I was like, this is really similar, like, and it was partly because I just had, I mean, there are two perspectives and it does dip a little bit in and out of that, Um, but... As in, you know, those are um, epistolatory parts. You know, it was one voice, and that simplified things massively for me. I, I was always trying to do multiple perspectives before and just get this massive kind of like polyphonic voice kind of thing going on, but it was always really tricky. And then, you know, you've got to you've got to keep up with everything, and it's really hard. And I don't like hard.
0: But <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, I mean, you're. I, I'm glad you kind of did stick with Largely from Erin's yeah. perspective. I mean, her, her voice, I think I messaged you, actually, after I started reading it, because the voice was so strong. Um, and I think if you've, you've got a character like Erin and you can capture her voice, it's criminal not to uh, write in that close, you know, first-person perspective. Um, I think prose and and voice are much more important, for me anyway as a reader, than plots and twists when I'm reading because it drags you through it. Um, But just accessing that voice, you know, did you read anything in particular or did you access old diaries? I know you're not Erin, but just to sort of capture, um, you know, Ah.
3: You know, I actually was reading, um, rereading Lunar Park a lot at the time um by Brad Easton Ellis. Um, I, just because it had this sense of like um a, a sort of fraudulent or um fr- the frame of a memoir. And he's he's obviously such a, an amazing voice um led novelist. And it had this just this this quality of being sort of slightly unreliable or very unreliable and sinister and atmospheric and um you know a lot of suburban dread so I was reading that a lot when I was writing it there was probably a little bit more of that in the first draft like I even wanted a tiny bit of supernatural elements which I was not allowed to do (laughs) um and um and yeah and I think like I don't think I did, um, go back into any diaries, but I definitely with, um, uh, Erin, one of the things that I remember the first part that I wrote about was the first love kind of concept with Danny, um, really thinking a lot about teenage girls and that sort of concept of like, you know, you never forget your first love and those YA movies, like, you know, like, um, like Twilight or something. And this sort of, um, sense of like, um, this demon lover, but like, uh, also, like the reality of like coercive control and the vulnerability of young um, women in in their first relationships with no experience of anything else, and um, you know that was something that I was thinking a lot about and and reading a little bit about.
2: Mm. And and that, I feel like because my my generation certainly was the same, and I and I and I'm I and mean, I'm hopeful that it's changed. I feel like it probably has. Um, there's a really strong theme that's prevalent in, in, in the novel. There's uh this alternative form of um masculinity, but still pretty pretty horrible. Um yeah. And and there's also, you know, right at the heart of the story, there's there's concept, there's sort of uh this idea of trauma and how trauma shapes us as adults as well. You know, that, that you know, childhood trauma and yep. you know, you know, trauma Traum was inescapable, really. Um, and that's, yeah, the, the, I think I'm the question I'm thinking in my head was, is there something you had in mind uh, that you wanted the reader to take away from this when you were writing, or if not, you know, is there something now you're quite um, proud of or feel quite strongly about that um, you've teased out and edits perhaps, something that you'd like? And I know it's not a message you're not dogmatic in this
3: yeah I I know what you mean and I think um you know I think there was a a a huge sense of um the sense of kind of like surviving life um and for me like I guess it was a way to work through in in a sense was a kind of a bit of a a bibliotherapeutic way to work through some um complex PTSD sort of stuff too um you know I, I think uh I don't know what I would I would hope that people would you know take away from it but you know I feel like there's a sense of like redemption there and uh, you know I I didn't kind of make that oh I won't I don't want to give that away I've done spoilers by accident before but I, I think I'm too noir too at heart to um you know for happy endings but um, you know, I think, like, I wanted to show that, you know, people could survive even if they were kind of, like, broken and that they could maybe make sense of things through language and story, basically.
2: Mm. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and I think, it, I, you know, I feel like Erin does that, you know, the, the her kind of arc, I suppose, is yeah. um, it, it begins a long time before the book begins. and yeah sort of calms about and sort of you know um, there's enough there at the end that it's you can continue to see some growth um yeah. just in terms of the uh you know the themes and elements but also that to tie it back to the um, inspiration of the story kathy carver can you yeah. talk about is there a true story behind that is that No,
3: but i i i did i'm really glad that you brought her up because she's somebody that i think about and um the, if you we're talking about real people there was um a childhood friend that i had um when i moved to america and um you know her her family and i remember being really impacted by by her um the that the, that particular storyline I think really like there was probably a couple of kind of like um stories that sort of informed that but uh there is a little bit of that Lisk Long Island serial killer kind of vibe to it too because I'd been reading The Lost Girls by Robert Kolker and watching now they've made a Netflix movie about it which is pretty good the book is incredible um so it's sort of it, it's sort of like I was just trying to kind of like create a collage of true crime on the island itself, um, but Kathy Carver is a totally fictional storyline, and it's—I'm not going to say any more except that her story isn't over.
2: <laughs> ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, which leads me to my next question: Is there, um, you know, we spoke about you've—you've you've got a manuscript and draw yes probably pretty close to being ready to just to, to get to your publisher um what's uh, you know what what's happening uh in the world of i shot the devil next will you well it?
3: what i'm what i'm hoping for is um you know obviously i don't have any news yet but um is uh us um uh and i'm hoping for movie and film uh, sorry film and tv um so because i i've always felt like it would adapt really well, um, especially to Netflix. And, um, uh, somebody, uh, my, my supervisor, um, Susan was telling me her teenage son really loved it. And, uh, a couple of people have sort of said that it, um, you know, really did appeal to, it, it does have a bit of a, like an appeal to a younger, um, audience, I think. Um, I guess that depends on what you're watching. I was watching horror movies when I was pretty <laughs> young. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm, I would love to see it on Netflix. I'd love to see it as a series. I just, you know, I, I mean, besides from the fact that it'd be great for me, you know, as a writer, it's just like, I'd love to see it. Like, I'd love to see it come alive like that. So that those are the things that I'm hoping for that. Um, and obviously, you know, I do, I have written more since this, cause this was, you know, 2018 was a complete manuscript. And now it's 2021, so yeah, I've got other fires on the uh, irons on the fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so there's more to come for for this world. That's I'm glad to hear. And, and when you talk about you know um, the potential for adaptation, you know, in my limited experience with screenwriters, they're always trying to tease out the narratives that. Were left out of the book because you know books tend not to have enough in them to sustain a series or even a film sometimes. So yeah. um but I feel like there's so much so many stories and subplots and side stories that um you could really tease out in this
3: there are too many. I mean <laughs> according to Goodreads. Um, yeah no I, I uh I I feel like there are a lot and I and that's kind of the thing is like I tend to go down lots of rabbit holes. Um, uh, but I think there's always stories within stories, um, so I definitely think that's true. That that there could be, you know, so many things that you could um, do. But I, I'm just, I just really want to see Ricky Hell, you know, um, on the screen. Uh, <laughs> frankly, yeah.
2: Uh, who would who? Th- 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 I've got the question here: Who plays Ricky? And I
3: that's that? the thing. I've been, I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot. I mean, it, in. Uh, so i love american um uh oh my god I'm got a complete mental blank um, yes um and i so 1984 there was a character that plays richard ramirez and he is perfect um but it's too much like richard ramirez so i think i need someone who looks a little bit different I don't know. I have, you know, I have a young Johnny Depp, but he's not a young Johnny Depp. Oh Jeff, no!
2: And he's
3: no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> not okay now. So
2: what about Adam Driver? Is that Adam Driver?
3: Oh, that's a really good idea. He'd have to grow his hair out long, and you know, but
2: yeah. you know, he's probably he's maybe he's a touch hair. old now. But he's, um, a,
3: he's he's actually that's a good idea. I'll put that. I'll put. Yeah. That
2: in. <laughs> put him in. Um, see what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and, and what about Aaron?
3: I thought about that, and for some reason, I wanted Florence Pugh, even though she doesn't look anything like the character. It's just like I love her so much as an actress, and I feel like she'd be able to nail it. And I've seen her as a Brunette, and she's you know convincing. Um, yeah, so that's kind of who I who I want for her.
2: Okay, I, I like I like her a lot actually. Um,
3: yeah, she, I mean, happy to not. She's-
2: <laughs> um, we we have audience questions. A couple. Oh. Um, here and would someone would like to know do movies also influence uh your work um so movies and tv do they do they influence your writing do you you get inspiration from um
3: oh my god yes like I I think you know so River's Edge was, like, a huge influence um, in this book um, and it was a movie that I watched over and over again um, and I'd say a young Keanu Reeves would be a better Ricky Hell and he's in that and he's, you know, total babe. But um I own skies in that and um, it's a brilliant movie about a youth crime. Um, but the interesting thing is I was reading about the Ricky Hell case, uh, sorry, Ricky Hell, Ricky Casso case um, recently and I didn't know a lot of the details, um, as in some of the details I didn't want to know when I was writing the book, because I didn't want to uh, recreate the crime. I just wanted to use the um, the idea and also the, the cultural context and the setting. Um, so there were certain things that I didn't actually know, um, details that I kept close to myself. And then I read them and I was like, wow, River's Edge seems to be really based on that crime. Um, And because it was also made like three years after. So I think it was really influenced by that too. But yeah, fully. Also horror movies, massive, massive um, influence. Um, My brother was a mad horror movie um, fan, always had Fangoria. And, um, you know, I I watched Silent Night, Deadly Night when I was like seven. Um, All the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, uh, you know, and definitely heaps of um, cultural references in there. So
2: we got a pirated version of Blair Witch Project before wow. like, even in cinemas in New Zealand. Um,
3: did you think it was real, or did you think it
2: was? Yeah, like, no, yeah, yeah. We thought yeah. it was real, absolutely, yeah. and it was, um, and it was horrible. I, I guess that was like '99 or something. But we also had um, Scream taped, you know, so you, oh, so you fast forward over the of the ads, and so good,
3: <laughs> love Scream. Yeah, I feel like actually really that influenced my first book actually, <laughs> Scream. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I, I feel like, um, you know, there was a time when I moved from, back from America and I was like a teenager and just back in this kind of school where I just didn't know anyone and um, uh, except uh, you know I had like one or two like friends that you know I go and see movies with we go to these like you know double um um double features and watch like Natural Born Killers and Clockwork Orange and stuff like that um but before that like I just didn't have any friends and so like I'd just be reading and watching videos and like just watching so many movies so movies are a huge part of my life I'd watch like a movie a day practically so yeah
2: yeah, I, I went through this phase where I was watching the top 100 greatest um, classic films and yeah. we got, we probably got a bit, through about 30 or 40 of them. Um, and, yeah, I, I found that was quite, you know, because you sort of forget about, you know, themes and ideas that were in these stories. And,
3: yeah. Um,
2: yeah, and they're sort of outside of the zeitgeist, so to speak, so you can kind of be a bit fresh.
3: Totally. Um, and also, like I mean, obviously, like watching movies and TV as a writer, it's so great because story, like it, it it's really inspiring. Like watching Mary of Easttown*. I think you know, as a writer, you watch that and you think, "Jesus, like you know, that is incredible writing." You
2: Give up though, like you. I
3: know there's a bit of despair. <laughs> there is a bit of despair. It's pretty phenomenal.
2: Um, we've got a question from Susan. Uh, will you tell us more about love? The role that love or its absence plays in the narrative. That's a Great question. I wish I thought of that, actually, Susan.
3: It is a great question. I'd be happy to answer it. Love. So, yeah, I think um, uh, I read way too many romantic poets um, growing up. um, And, uh, you know, I'm really, really obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe and, um, you know, the idea of kind of like Lenore and the... um, impossible love and the love and the grave and also you know big goth um so I think that really uh is very uh very important in the book and very evident and I think at the same time i mean it's it's hard it's i can't be an anti-romantic or cynical but there is a sense of cynicism too also there um i guess about your kind of idealism being shattered a little bit too in terms of romantic love um but also that uh romantic love um Imperfect as it is or impossible as it is to sustain um, in, in its intensity, um, is still kind of really valuable and really worth it. Um, and I guess, like also, you know, those feelings that you have when you're um when you're really young, uh you're without kind of experience, they feel so heady and and insane. And you know, I love also, I always reread um Romeo and Juliet um. But besides from it just being really beautiful um, and also quite violent, um, that sense of that um, things being you know violent delights. So mm-hmm.
2: it would definitely be a thriller if uh, William Shakespeare was alive today. Oh, be, yeah, <laughs> put that in the crime section. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have time for one more question. I'm going to take a question from Lucy. Um.
3: I can't see her, but I feel her.
2: Why do certain locations lend themselves to noir? To what extent, um, writing from place? To what extent does writing from place play a role in your work? That's another really, really good. Well,
3: question. You've got two really, really brilliant um, academics just asking these questions. <laughs> Um, one after the other. I love it. Um, so, sorry, could you rephrase that again?
2: Yeah. No, I, f- I, f- I feel like, you know, these people should have been doing the launch. <laughs> do um, uh, so the question is, why does certain locations lend themselves to uh yeah. And to what extent does writing from a um, place play a role in your work.
3: Yes, that's very, very interesting. And I think like, you know, the psychogeography of a place is really, really important. And so say like, for example, like Long Island, um, it has this sense of being incredibly affluent and very privileged, but is really racially um, segregated. Um, And especially when I was growing up in the um, nineties and coming into America as a kind of a a fresh, with a fresh perspective, and, you know, not being aware of things, not being American um, and and not really understanding those kind of subtleties and being really young too, um, just kind of going, well, this is really strange, like I'm, you know, through one bridge and, and into another suburb, you've got this incredibly, you know, wealthy area with a golf course, and then you've got projects, and then you've got crime. And um so, but underneath this kind of affluence and privilege is obviously, there's, there's all these, you know, terrible things that are happening. And so I guess in terms of usher the devil, uh, that's very, very evident. So, you know, while the adults are sort of thinking um, that there are teens in the woods doing occult and satanic things, really it is, um, you know, the adults um, and in their places of business and their homes and and whatnot, um, they're doing wicked things. So there's this sense of things sort of seething under the surface. Um, I think being the water, there's something really evocative about that too. Um, and it's quite spooky and then there's also this kind of post-colonial kind of sense too, um, you know, obviously, like I was always really aware that we were living in the land of the Iroquois and um, in the same way that in Australia we're we're, um, living on stolen land and, you know, there's been genocide there too. So I was really, really conscious of that when I was kind of growing up and, um, like, sort of learning about Long Island and the history.
2: Mm, it's such a good answer as well and just... You know, like you think about, um, like an island, certainly like a prison island, like our, yeah. our place, but 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 islands, you know, alone, just that that single fact. Um, and I know Long Island isn't uh, the same as, say, Shutter Island, <laughs> um, yeah, but but there's something about that, you know. I, I find yeah. lots of crime is written. And sit on on, on islands. This yeah.
3: Yeah. And I mean, also like say later on, obviously with um the Long Island serial killer, um, with that that's a you know a really good example um of say, you know, really, really uh wealthy suburb, beautiful beach um, coastline, and these, you know, women from very working class uh backgrounds who are sex workers, um being buried in the beach there, these horrific things that are happening. Um the police not taking notice um and the victims being really maligned and also just very discarded in the media um too until you know people started writing about it and and and, and raising awareness of these victims and that they were they were real people so that's a very interesting um you know very eerie real life sort of thing that happened and also when i was there um uh, Amy Fisher, the Amy Fisher case was um, sort of exploding all around us because uh, Amy Fisher had just um, shot her lover's wife in the head and uh, she went to my high school. I wasn't in high school at the time, my brother was, but his friend actually drove her once to case out the house and um, she was like a really rich schoolgirl and she was like moonlighting as an escort and she was seeing this married man and then she became this, you know, attempted murderess, so...
2: Okay. That's fascinating actually because, um, you know, like if you want to, if you're a crime writer and you want to write about social issues, you have setting plays such an important part in well, that as well, you know, like yeah. you find somewhere where they, these tensions are bubbling, you know, under the surface.
3: Yeah. 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 Interestingly enough with Amy Fisher story, like I think, um, you know, it's more well known in America, but like there were two um, telemovies made about it and Drew Barrymore was in one and Alyssa Milano was in the other. (laughs) And one of them was sympathetic and one of them wasn't. But also Amy Fisher was represented by Eric Nayberg, this criminal solicitor who actually represented um, Jimmy Torriano, who's in um, the Acid King case, which the book is very loosely based on. So that was another, like, cool synchronicity.
2: Yeah. yeah. There we go. That might be the perfect place, I think, to wrap things up. Um, I think Christine's going to come in. Yeah. I can see. Here I
1: am. Here I am. Josh and Ruth, thank you so much for entertaining us. Thank you both so much for giving us even more to think about, more to dream about to have more in common with one another. But my role really right now is to say thank you, Josh, on behalf of Heshed and behalf of Readings. Such a treat to have you here uh, launching, officially launching Ruth's I Shot the Devil. To each and every one of you out there, thank you so much for joining us. And I really do hope that I get to see you again. Do take care and uh, do keep reading. And thank you again. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.
2: Thanks.
3: Thank you. Thanks, everyone.
0: You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews news want to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The production for this podcast is by me, Nico Gallagher. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Corbyn Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.